As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today, James chapter 2. So, show of hands here, how many of you, and I'm not going to call you out or anything, but how many of you have ever heard this, that Christians are judgmental? Anybody ever heard that? Okay, uh, thank you. How about this one, that Christians are hypocrites who don't live what they believe? You ever heard that one as well? So there's a little bit of irony here. On one side, Christians are criticized because we're too firm in what we believe. And then on the other side, we're also criticized for not living what we believe as well. And I've found that many Christians have confusion about four, four key terms that you'll find running through the New Testament and running through the, the book of James. And so let me, let me talk about these terms. They're truth, grace, faith, and works. Truth, grace, faith, and works. So my daughter McKenna, who is an aspiring artist, has made me some signs. And let me illustrate a little bit about how these work together. So we start out with the truth of God. The idea that God is creator, that God is absolute, that God is the one who determines for us what is right and wrong. And so we have the holiness of God, and we have what God has revealed to us about himself, and yet at the same time we have this reality that we all fall short of God, and so we have truth, but we're, we can't really obtain it on our own because we have this sin that is causing us to fall short. And so here's a, a second big word that helps define our faith, and that is the word grace. You see, your salvation is not based upon your works, and it's not based upon how good you are, but your salvation is based upon God and His goodness and God doing something for you that you could never do on your own. So if we, have, if we have truth without grace, then our Christianity can become very judgmental. We can be very, thus saith the Lord. But if we have grace without truth, then we can be very loving and kind, but our Christianity becomes somewhat spineless. It doesn't really have an anchor that drives us through as to this is what we believe. So then God calls you and he calls me to faith. Faith is when we're no longer trusting in ourselves, but rather we are trusting in Jesus. And so God calls us to place our faith, not in how good we can be, not in our own goodness, but to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And then that leads us to works. Because we have faith in Christ, our faith leads us to works. Now, we're working through the book of James. And the book of James is sometimes misunderstood because it makes a large connection between the fact that if you have faith, that's going to be lived out or seen in your life. And yet, as you put all this together, realize that there is a connection of these ideas that is found in Jesus Christ. God is altogether holy. 
All of us fall short of the holiness of God, and none of us on our own can live out all the truths of God, which drives us to grace. God has to do something for you and for me that I could never do on, our own, on my own. And so he sends Jesus, who lives a life that we could never live, dies on the cross for our sins, and the response that Jesus asks from us is that we will place our faith in him. And then as we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit then empowers us to live out the truth through, through our lives. And so these four ideas, they come together in Jesus Christ. Jesus brings perfect clarity to truth, grace, faith, and works. Jesus taught us the truth. He taught us about the holiness of God and who God is. He also brought grace near. Through his death and resurrection, we can experience the grace of God. He demonstrated us for us what it looks like to live a life of faith where we are trusting God. And then he also completed his work. He did for you and he did for me what we could never do on our own. And so he brings these four ideas together. This is the Christian life. Sometimes in the Christian life, we get imbalanced. Sometimes we have truth, but we don't have grace. Sometimes we have grace, but we don't have truth. Sometimes we talk a lot about faith, but we don't talk a lot about works and vice versa. But the reality is, is that all four of these have to be working together. Now look with me to James chapter 1. We talked last about this 14 days ago. Uh, thankful for Charles Patrick and his message last week. But in verse 26 of James chapter 1, the Bible says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here in the book of James, you have some Christians, and they are doing religious things. They are going to church. When the offering plates are passed, they're giving an offering. They eat at Chick-fil-A, because that's what Christians do. They drink a lot of coffee while they read the Bible, because that's what Christians do. But there is a problem. The reality is, is that their religion is useless. They are in danger. They have deceived themselves. Now, they think that it's all good between them and God, but the reality is, is that their faith is hollow. Now, let's just be real. There are times in each of our lives where we struggle in our Christian faith. And we may struggle, not, not because we don't love God, but because we get focused on the wrong things. So Friday, I, uh, I have my Murphy Church shirt on, and I'm sitting there, and I'm eating some guacamole from Walmart. Uh, and I love the Walmart guacamole because it, like, stays green for two weeks. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what they put in it to do that, but somehow it stays green for, for two weeks. Anyway, I'm eating chips. That's this part of the sermons brought to you by Walmart. Anyway, so 
I drop a bunch of guacamole right on my Murphy Road shirt. Everybody say, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Right on the logo, over my heart. Oh. And I was like, that's it. It, it reminded me of this passage of Scripture that I was getting ready to talk on on how we're supposed to, to keep ourselves unstained, is what the Bible says, unstained from the world. You see, here's what happens. When our focus gets on earthly things, when that's all we think about, it begins to stain our hearts. And when, as a church, we're entirely focused on just earthly things, it begins to stain our church. And when we start living in ungodly ways, it begins staining the name of Christ, and eventually we begin to lose something. We begin to lose our authenticity. And so last time, when I talked to you from this passage, uh, we looked at verses 26 and 27. We talked about three warning signs that your faith is becoming stained. Three warning signs that your faith is becoming stained. The, the first is this, that my esteem is more concerned with pleasing others than pleasing God. The Bible says that pure and undefiled religion is before God. When we start finding our esteem and, hey, look at what I'm doing, look at what, look at what I know, look at this, hear this, when we start finding our esteem in pleasing others rather than pleasing God, you, begin to you need to begin to realize that that's a warning sign that your faith is becoming stained. Secondly, when my words lack encouragement, when all the words that I speak criticize, characterize, or cynicize people who aren't like me, and I start tearing down people with my words rather than building them up and leading them to Christ, I need to do a heart check because the world has begun to stain my heart. And thirdly, when I lack empathy. When I don't really care about hurting people. The passage says here, the widows and the orphans can be in distress. But when our hearts are stained by the things of the world, people can be hurting, they can be in distress, they can feel all alone, but we don't really care because all we're thinking about is ourselves. So many of you come here today and you are seeking a Christianity that is authentic. You're seeking something that's real. And, and perhaps you've been disillusioned. Perhaps you've been burned in the past. I want you to realize this, that authentic Christianity is always grounded in grace, truth, and it's worked out in faith and through our works. That's what Jesus modeled for us, that we are to have the truth of God that leads us to the grace of God, our need for the grace of God, which leads us back to the truth of God, that we live our lives in faith and works. And these four things, they kind of they work all together. Authentic Christianity is about following Jesus, knowing Him and making Him known to, to others as well. Now, there was a time when the church in Jerusalem was absolutely amazing. In Jerusalem, on this day that we call Pentecost, Peter preached, and 3,000 people came to know the Christ, came to know Jesus as Christ. And the Bible says that they had all things in common. They had this incredible unity, 
They had the spirit. They had gladness and simplicity in their hearts. And they were changing the community. Literally, what happened in Jerusalem went around the world. It landed here. What started in Jerusalem became a global movement. But there was a period of time where those believers in Jerusalem, they got out of focus. Life began to happen, and slowly they started getting stained by the world, and they lost their focus on God's kingdom, and they started building their own kingdom. And as James begins writing to these Jerusalem Christians, he's trying to get them back into focus with what really matters. And so he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, look with me there in your Bibles, that the person sitting next to you is asleep, wake them up, okay? He says, my, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what had happened within the church is the church in Jerusalem had gravitated towards their favorites. Now, some of those favorites could be very harmless. We have our favorite places to sit. Anybody have your favorite hymn, your favorite song? Your favorite events that the church does or the favorite things that you like to do with your fellow Christians? Favorite restaurants to go to? But eventually, those favorites started becoming their faith. And so within their faith, they began playing favorites. And they even had their favorite people. So when you look at the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, you see that once it was a movement of God, and it was marked by this miracle that we call the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, people from all walks of life, literally people from all around the world, had converged upon Jerusalem, and they heard the gospel, and God did a miracle. They heard the gospel in their own language. And then what they heard, they took back to their own countries. To, they started new churches, and this incredible movement that we call the church began to explode from Jerusalem. But in the process, after this great powerful movement of God, the church of Jerusalem became very endangered because it was becoming a club. And it was marked by what I want and what I like. Now, when this happens in a church, it, it doesn't happen all at once. It's not like one day, hey, man, the day of Pentecost is occurring and the gospel's just shifting and then suddenly we just go into our own, own shell. It's a, it's a slow drift. Listen, the devil doesn't ring your front doorbell and talk to you on the camera phone. Hey, are you home today? I'd like to mess up your life. That's not how, how he works. What he does is he finds your, your weak spot and he, he slips in. He kind of slips in the back door and he begins slithering into everything in your life and he, he blends in and and so so James is trying to get the church here refocused and and one Sunday it happened two guests show up at the Jerusalem church and James illustrates beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2 he says for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in 
If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over here or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Now let's just pause right there because there's something you need to understand. The Jerusalem Christians were poor, very, very poor. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, you find that they pulled their resources together just to take care of one another, to make sure that each other went through a Christ crisis time. So here's the illustration. You're gathered for church, and in walks a very well-known wealthy person. Very, very wealthy. Let's say Jerry Jones walks into church. Jeffrey Bezos. Is it Bezos or Bezos? Whatever. Amazon guy. Uh, Warren Buffett walks in to church. And when he walks in the door, there's this little, <gasps> and everything stops. And there's this whisper. Hmm. I can't believe he joined us for church. And then there's a little side gathering. He's the kind of person that we need. He can help us. He can help us build the children's building. He can help us pay off the mortgage on the sanctuary. He can help us build a hundred-foot Jesus <laughs> with a baptismal at the bottom and a water slide that that from the children's building to the baptistry, when they get saved, they go down the water slide and they land and we baptize them and everybody celebrates. He can help us have lights and dry ice. When the pastor comes out, this guy can do this for us. And so the usher immediately takes him to the place that they called the benches. The benches were the luxury boxes. I mean, think about this. Back in, back in the Bible, they kind of had luxury boxes in church. This is where the VIPs sat. In the luxury boxes, you got free popcorn, free barbecue during the sermon, especially if it went past noon. It was kind of like a pew spa. I give you a complimentary neck massage, the VIP treatment. I exaggerate, obviously. But this, this wealthy guy comes into the midst and they immediately give him the VIP treatment. Meanwhile, in walks a poor person. He's not good looking, he's not super cool, not extroverted. But this guy is seeking God. And they hardly notice him. Hardly notice him. Falling all over themselves for this one person, hardly even notice this other person. And they say, hey, hey maybe there's some places you can stand here at the back. Oh, you don't want to stand there? Well, why don't you come to the front and you can sit on the ground next to my, my footstool. And so here's what James says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. 
Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Now let me hit pause here because James is not telling us that it's wrong to be blessed by God and to have financial resources in life. It's okay to do well in your career. It's okay for you to be blessed by God financially. In fact, I pray often that God will bless you financially, and then he'll give you a generous heart. (laughs) But James is saying, look at yourself, church. You're falling all over yourselves. You're trying to impress this guy who is the very person that is oppressing you. This guy with the gold ring that you're taking to this place of honor, he is the one who is blaspheming your God, and he's also the one that is dragging you into court. And meanwhile, that person that you don't even notice, that person that you encourage to stand over in the corner and just be quiet and blend in, God notices him. In fact, God's been working in his heart. And God's been drawing him to grace and truth and faith and works. And God is maturing that person. And God desires to use that person. He doesn't have anything here on earth. But spiritually, that guy that you think that you're too good for, he's an heir to the kingdom. He may be financially poor, but he's rich in faith. Catch this, church. The message of Jesus Christ is revolutionary. Because he targeted the heart, not the outward appearance. The gospel goes directly to what are you inside? Not what do you look like, not even what do you say, but who are you inside? Are you authentic? Are you real inside? And is God working from the inside out? Now society tries to characterize us by outward realities. And so we have these classifications. You have rich and poor. You have fit and unhealthy. We categorize people by uh, ethnicity, African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, Asian. By your appearance, you are beautiful, you're not so beautiful, you're uh, you're, you're intellect, you're, you're intelligent, or, oh, well, you're just simple. There are few places in the world where external realities fade and the heart shines. The cross is a place where everyone stands on level ground. We're all sinners in need of grace. And when you bow before the cross accepting the Savior, God's not interested in your riches, your beauty, your degrees, your age, your family, your goodness. It's about your heart. Are you truly bending the knee, bowing your heart before the Lord of the universe and saying, God, I need you. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. God's looking for authenticity. Genuine worshipers who bow before the cross knowing that they need God to do a work in them that they can't do on their own. Now, most everyone agrees that something in the world is just not right. Something, there's something in the balance of the world that's not right. And so we try to fix it, and we go about it from multiple angles. We'll try to fix it through economics, through politics, education, entertainment. I'm not against any of those things. 
We try to fix the world through those methods when in reality, the only way to change the world is to change the human heart. Now, this is why the gospel is the most powerful force on earth. Because it's the only thing that can change the human heart. The gospel unites. It unites the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the powerful and the humble. The gospel transcends race, culture, and time with one simple reality, that God loves you so much that he sent his son, that his son lived a life that you and I could never live. He died on the cross for our sins, and all who believe in him are forgiven of their sins. They are part of God's family. Their eternity is changed, and their soul is changed from the inside out. And when you genuinely bow before the cross, placing your faith in Christ, everything changes. Now, this isn't behavior modification, it's soul transformation. Everything changes from the inside out. That's the gospel. That's what we're about. That's who we're about. So I, I want to share with you quickly four pastoral prayers that, that I have for Murphy Church. The first is this that we will be a place where anyone from anywhere can experience the power of the gospel. Anyone from anywhere can experience the power of the gospel in their lives through the testimony and ministry of this church. It's a prayer of my heart. We're just a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can change anybody. I like that, don't you? We're just a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can change anybody. And I pray that people from all over our community and all over our world can experience the power of the gospel through this church. Secondly, I pray that we will be a community that demonstrates grace, truth, faith, and works in our relationship with God and others. And it's important that we have all four. We could have a lot of truth, but if we don't have grace, it's going to be very cold. And we can have a lot of grace, but if we don't have truth, it's going to be spineless. You have to have truth, but you also have to have grace. And that people will experience a church that truly has faith in God, and that out of that faith in God, the Holy Spirit is showing us who God created so that our lives will overflow with works for the glory of God. And that these four things will be working within our community that we call our church. Thirdly, I'm praying that we will seek to be disciples who make disciples. Now i got a whole lot to say about this. Because God has birthed something, He's burned something deep within me. And you're going to hear it come out over the next months and years. But the gospel is never meant to just end with you. The gospel saves your soul, it saves my soul, but then God calls you to be a part of a movement. He uniquely equips you to be a disciple that helps make disciples. And so I have this, I have this prayer, I have this vision that as God is growing us, that what God is doing within us will overflow our lives so that church will not just be a gathering or a building or, or something we do, but church will become a movement. And when we come together, we encourage one another, and we edify one another, we strengthen, we learn, but then it goes out. And we're disciples who are making other disciples 
and together we're living life. And then fourth, I pray that our only favorite will be Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's really even not about what I like or what you like. It's about Jesus and making much of Him. And unfortunately, this church, they got caught up in what they liked. They got caught up in, well, this person can do this for us, and this person can do this for us. And in the process, they just lost focus on the one who can do all things. And that is Jesus. The prayer of my heart right now for our church is that God will manifest His power upon our church. And we will see a movement of God. A movement of God in our hearts that then changes our families and changes our community. Not for our glory, but for His. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Today needs to be a day where you trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. I'll be here at the front during this next song. I'll be here after the service as well. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you. And we ask, Lord, that this church might be a place where anyone from any place can experience the power of God. Help us, Lord, not to be a club. Help us, Lord, not to have this consumer mentality. But help us, Father, to have a gospel mentality. Lord, I pray that you will help us to have a balanced faith that understands that we need the truth of God and that the truth of God drives us to our need for the grace of God and calls us to faith so that we might live our lives for your glory. And Lord, help us to be disciples that take what you are doing in us and allows it to overflow us so that our lives are connecting with other people's lives and we're helping other people mature in you. Then, Lord, I pray that we will have no other preference, no other favorite other than Jesus Christ. May he be the center of our identity and the center of all that we do. Lord, forgive us for those seasons when we drift and we lose focus of Jesus. And I pray that right here in this moment, in this place, you will once again consecrate our hearts to lead people to worship, grow in, and serve God through lives that are being changed by the power of the gospel. May the congregation know that they are loved by you. May they know of my love for them. But beyond all that, Lord, may we know Jesus. And may other people know Jesus because of what he's doing in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.